Bibles. There are Bibles at the back if you'd like to use one of those. And turn with me to Matthew in chapter 13. Um, I'll read the first 23 verses in a few moments. And uh, beginning a short series over the next few weeks, just looking at Jesus's teaching on the famous parable of the sower. Um, the parable of the sower is the only parable of the Lord Jesus recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And its special importance is further underlined in Mark's version of the parable in Mark 4 verse 13, where our Lord prefaces his interpretation of it for his disciples by asking, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So in other words, the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. It is a teaching about the nature of teaching. It's the word of the Lord that explains the character of the ministry of the word of the Lord. I found it very moving this morning hearing Paul Mallard talk about the word and then the word leading us to Jesus. But it's the word of the Lord that explains the ministry of the word of the Lord. So its message is not particularly obscure, it's not difficult to discern, and it is clearly on the surface of things an analysis of the different responses of the human heart to the ministry of the word of the gospel. And as such, it really just has two main, two primary lines of application. So first of all, the parable of the sower is intended to help the perplexed disciples understand why it is that people respond very differently to exactly the same message. And something that's always struck me, even when that message is preached on the lips of the greatest preacher who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this parable is meant to be comforting and clarifying and assuring for Christians who are on mission for Jesus. Preaching and witnessing and sharing the gospel and yet meeting with an array of different responses to the message. I came across a brother in Vienna when I was ministering in Vienna and uh, he, he, knew, he told me of Charles Marsh who, who served for 40 years with one convert. 40 years with one convert. Now, by our modern way of success, that doesn't tick any boxes at all. But it had, you know, it had, it has wonderful gospel responses which we cannot see. I remember hearing of someone who was a missionary who went into, um, who went into the, to the jungle somewhere and he ministered and came home depressed and defeated because he did not have any converts. hundred years later, it's recorded that someone went back into the same place and found a cathedral built there based on the ministry after he had left. So, I mean, so we aren't in the business of success. We're in the business of faithfulness. We're called to be faithful. So this parable is meant to comfort, clarify, and assure us. 
And secondly, the parable is intended to challenge every one of us who hear the gospel. Whether we are Christians or not, to make sure that the soil of our hearts is well tilled and receptive to the message of the word, lest it fail to bear fruit in our lives. We should fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord. And Luke's version concludes with his exhortation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we're, we're to make sure that the seed that is sown doesn't fall uselessly on our ears, on our consciences, and on our hearts. So this afternoon we'll take some time to consider some general observations about the parable of the sower. Lord willing, we'll come back in the few weeks ahead to look at each one of the four soils in turn to consider the different ways that our hearts react, respond to the ministry of the word. Just very simply, you're going to ask four questions of the text this afternoon. What is the seed? Who sows the seed? How is it sown? And where is it sown? Let's pray together before we read God's word. Lord God, we're going to read a parable about how our respond, hearts respond to the word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and plough the soil of each of our hearts to make them receptive to the word. Holy Spirit... Amen. Give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name I pray. Amen. So this is God's word, Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no roots, they were withered away. And other seeds fell amongst thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and in their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself and endures for a while. 
and when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown amongst thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We thank the Lord he's spoken to us in the reading of his inerrant word. Two words, whichever I hear them or read them, always make me sceptical. Results guaranteed. You ever brought something where it said, results guaranteed? Um, these pills will make you smarter. Results guaranteed. Or this investment will, will make you a millionaire. Results guaranteed. Or the perfume of this, or, the, or this cologne will make you devastatingly attractive. Results guaranteed. But there are still, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror, a lot of stupid, poor, ugly people in the world today. So much for those results that have been guaranteed. But when it comes to the work of the gospel, I think there can remain a certain expectation that results really should be guaranteed. We live in a results kind of culture. And the gospel should and work we instinctively feel. So we share the good news with our friends. We bring them to an evangelistic event. We bring them to church to hear the word preached. We give them the best Christian literature we can put our hands on. We pray for them. We think about their objections. We work with them. We pour ourselves rightly out on the work of evangelism. We love our friends and our neighbours and we tell them the good news of Jesus. Do you, know, do you have someone who still does not believe? Someone in your family? Someone in your street? someone very close to you. You've invested so much in them and yet they do not believe. What, what is going on? How do you account for that? Well, Matthew 13, at this point in the Gospel records, the disciples are confronted with rejection. In chapter 10, Jesus sent them out to preach, to witness, to evangelise. But lest they went in the mistaken impression that they would be riding on the crest of a wave, Jesus said that they were being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It sounds ominous, doesn't it? When you go, you'll be sheep in the midst of wolves. And he said they will deliver you over to the courts and they will flog you in the synagogues. That's a, that, that's a wonderful thing to send them out in. You're going to be sent as sheep amongst wolves and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. How does that sound? If that's your mission, someone to, if the Lord Jesus said to you, I want you to go and you're going to be as sheep amongst wolves and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. I think I would rather have a tooth pulled without an injection. And, you know, I would be busy that day. I'd have my hair done, as you can see. That takes a long time. But I cannot help but wonder if the disciples were beginning to, beginning to get a bit nervous about this whole enterprise of evangelism. 
But that's the response that Jesus said that they would encounter. Mixed responses at best. But then, in Matthew 11, we, we read of Jesus' own itinerant ministry. And what do we find? That even under the teaching and preaching of the Messiah, the God-man, many who heard did not believe. That's sobering, isn't it? That many who heard the teaching of the God-man, our Messiah, our Saviour, did not believe. Matthew 11, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if all the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So people did not respond uniformly with equal acceptance of the gospel, not even under the ministry of Christ himself. Which I find astonishing. Every time I read it, I find astonishing, humbling and challenging. So why does the gospel work for some? Surely the result should be guaranteed. Is that not how we feel? So where does the fault lie? Well, it's clearly not in the message. We haven't misunderstood the content of the gospel. Or is the fault with the messenger? Maybe a flaw of personality. And I can tell you that the messenger feels his own sin. The messenger knows how sinful his own heart is. So is it my, my temperament that, that, that hinders the gospel effectiveness? Is it my accent? Is it my speech impediment? What, what is it? Or maybe my method is defective. Maybe we need to go back to our drawing board and maybe I should come in in a t-shirt or something and sort of spike my hair up or something or rethink our strategy and come up with some revised techniques that will be winsome for the new generation. But for sure, there may be some legitimacy in concerns and questions, at least when it comes to our evangelism, flawed as it must always be. But none of these questions, none of what I just said, nothing about what I said applies to the Saviour. None of these questions work when it comes to understand mixed responses to the ministry of the Messiah. We could never suggest, it would be blasphemous to suggest, that the mixed responses to the Lord's teaching had with his misunderstanding the message, or a flaw of his personality, or a failure of appropriate methodology. So assuming all other things are equal, how do we account for the mixed results that come from the preaching of the gospel? And that's the question that Jesus is answering in the parable of the sower. And in verses 1 to 9, he delivers the parable, and in 18 to 23, he gives his exposition of the parable. But the simple metaphor it's clear for all to see a farmer sowing seed. So this is four questions. What is the seed? It's good to be reminded of this. What is the seed that the farmer is sowing? Verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been 
sown in his heart. That is what is sown along the path. Mark 4, verse 14, even more succinctly, the sower sows the word. So what is the seed that the sower sows? Well, it's the word of God. It's the word of the kingdom. It is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. The farmer can till the soil. The farmer can purchase the latest tools and gadgets to use on his farm. The farmer can irrigate or do any number of important necessary things. But if he doesn't sow the seed, there will never be a harvest. If he doesn't sow the seed, he may have the best equipment ever. But if he never sows the seed, there will never be a harvest. And we can cultivate many meaningful relationships with non-Christians. It's great. We can engage in mercy ministry. Hallelujah. We should practice hospitality. We can be busy, 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 busy bees. But unless we sow the seed of the word, there will never be a harvest. You can be incredibly busy about everything under the sun, but unless you sow the seed of the gospel, there will never be a harvest. No one will ever be converted without the gospel message. No one. We can feed hungry bellies. We can help fearful hearts. We can untangle broken relationships and do countless good works for the welfare of those around us. And we must. But they will not result in a single sinner passing from death to life unless the sinner hears and believes the good news about Jesus Christ. Unless the seed of the word is sown, there will not be a harvest. You see, if we win people to church with gimmicks, we will have a gimmicky church. Not to Christ. If we just sow the latest trends and fads in church growth methods, if we read the latest book and we do exactly what it says in the most winsome way possible, we will gather a crowd but we will not gather a single sinner saved by grace. We must sow the word. And that's so salutary for all of us. The seed is the word of God. And the expectation of Jesus for any fruit from his own ministry, for any harvest at all, rests not on his winning personality or in adopting clever technique or in gimmicks or in show. It didn't even rest in the miracles that our Saviour performed. When the scribes and the Pharisees asked for a sign prior to this, Jesus said, um, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus rested his confidence on the harvest in the proclamation of the word of the Lord. If you don't go to a church that proclaims the word of the Lord faithfully, find another church. Find another church. Because the seed is the word. Whatever else we do, whatever else we do, whatever else you do with your unconverted child, your unbelieving colleague, your friend who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must, you must tell them about Jesus. You must tell them about Jesus. You must sow the seed of the word if there will ever be a harvest. So the first question is very simply, what is the seed? The answer is 
the word. So preach the gospel. Secondly, by whom is the seed sown? And I find this really helpful and really challenging. If the seed is the word of the gospel, by whom is the seed sown? Who is the sower in the parable? Well, the context helps us. Matthew 13, 1 to 2, the same day Jesus went out of his house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Mark 4, verse 1, again he began to teach beside the sea. So Jesus is the sower of the seed. The seed is the word of God, and Jesus is the sower. And here he is sowing the seed. It's a simple point, but I think it must be insisted upon even now. It is a true that we're all called to sow the seed of the word of the gospel. Particularly true for gospel preachers, ministers of the gospel, is that they sow the word in their ministry. It's an oxymoron to be a a minister of the gospel and you don't sow the word of the gospel. But the New Testament teaches us that even then, it is still Jesus. It is still Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate and true sower of the seed. The word of the kingdom is the word of Christ. And when the preacher says what the scriptures say faithfully, I would have to stress faithfully, Christ himself says it. Christ himself says it. That's not to draw attention at all to the preacher, but it is the message of the word and the sower is Jesus. He is sowing the seed of his word through you and through me when we proclaim the gospel. Paul makes that point very clearly in Romans 10. Romans 10 verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, the English version slightly obscures what Paul is saying when he says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The Greek original says, how are they to believe in whom, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And that makes a huge difference because Paul is saying when preachers preach the word accurately and faithfully, who is it they hear in the preaching of the word Not the voice of the preacher, but the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of doing what I do without that being the case. It's, it's the Lord Jesus we hear in the ministry of the word. Now there's two implications amongst many. Two, just two. First of all, that highlights the glory of preaching. And the wonder of sharing the gospel. And every time you open your mouth to tell someone about Jesus, something supernatural is happening. Whenever the scriptures are faithfully expounded, isn't it wonderful that Christ, the risen Lord, is sowing seed in his field? It's not just the preacher droning on. The Lord Jesus Christ is sowing the seed of his word in hearts. What a privilege. Entrusted so that something as glorious and as dramatic and as mighty as that should happen. 
and we should be the instruments of it. Sinner as I am. Wicked, hell-deserving sinner that I am. Paul talks about having treasure in pots of clay. It's an apt though different metaphor. The treasure of the gospel. Who are we but old clay pots? But what a treasure entrusted to an old knackered clay pot. Christ himself speaking to the world and calling sinners to salvation. The second one of the second implication of Christ being the sower is that it reminds us of his sovereignty, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And that's written all over this. The sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's clear, as I said it at the beginning, the sovereignty of the Lord. Jesus himself calls this the parable of the sower. And if you think about that for a moment, that's an interesting title for the parable because we learn nothing about the sower in the story. The parable of the sower, and we learn nothing about the sower, because the focus rests on the variety of soils and the different responses to the seed of the word. So why is it called the parable of the sower? And I'd much rather call it the parable of the sower, because that's what Jesus calls it, but some people call it the parable of the soils, which I don't particularly think we should, because the one who tells us that it's the parable of the sower is the Lord himself. Well, who owns the field? The sower. The field is his. The seed is his. The crop is his. So as we we begin this short series of sermons, let us acknowledge once again, we've been in Philippians in our afternoon services, his lordship in the great matter of salvation. If, If we miss this, the parable is lost on us. It's intended to encourage comfort as we see the different responses to the gospel. Many of them negative, and we wonder what is going on, and we lose heart. Well, nothing will give us more heart, more courage, more boldness, more pressing on to keep praying, to keep preaching, to keep witnessing, than remembering to whom the field belongs, to whom the seed belongs, to whom the harvest belongs. It is his, not ours. Our task is not to make more Christians. Our task is not to make more Christians. Our task is not to create the harvest. That is his work alone. Our task is to broadcast the seed. Thirdly, how is the seed sown? So if the seed is the word, who sows the seed? The Lord Jesus Christ. How is the seed sown? And it's clear it's indiscriminately, isn't it? It's indiscriminately. You see that, if I can be a bit provocative, we might even say the seed is sown carelessly, without regard as to where it falls. It falls on the path that marks the boundary, where the ground is hard-packed and baked solid. And it fell on the rocky ground, where there's only just enough topsoil for it to take hold, but the roots don't penetrate because it's on rocky ground. The seed falls on the margin of the field where there's weeds, where there's thorns, and it falls on the fertile soil where it produces fruit. But it's the same seed falling in each of those four places. So the image is not 
of a farmer stooping over long, nice, razor, you know, sharp rows with his thumb taking a single seed and pushing it very carefully and deliberately into the ideal soil that has got many, many, I don't know, fertilizers, whatever, probably it's not a great picture, but in order to produce a bumper crop. That's not the image. What is the image? Well, clearly, what is the image? It's a farmer with a bag of seed, a bag of grain hanging from his hip, walking up and down, just doing this. Just broadcasting it, throwing it everywhere till the ground is covered with seed without any regard as to where it fell. Now, I believe as a good reformed Christian that salvation is the work of the sovereign Lord himself. Only the elect of God believe the gospel. And no one understood that more firmly than the Lord Jesus himself. When the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida did not respond to him in repentance and faith in chapter 11, what did Jesus do? He turned to prayer. And in his prayer at the end of Matthew 11, he rehearsed the absolute sovereignty of God in election. Matthew 11, verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all you who labour and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a strong a statement of the doctrine of election and irresistible calling that you'll find anywhere in Holy Scripture. But with that reminder ringing in his ears, what does Jesus do? Does he say to himself, I've forgotten I was a Calvinist? And I remember I was wrong to go to Bethsaida and Chorism and preach to everybody willy-nilly like that. No. Look at what he does in verse 25 to 27 of Matthew 11. He confesses the sovereignty of God in election. And then in Matthew 11:28, he turns from prayer and says, Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord Jesus sees no contradiction between the highest doctrine of God's sovereignty and the freest invitation to all people without distinction everywhere to come and believe in him. The hymn writer says, His only righteousness I show, his saving truth I proclaim. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, Preach him to all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. So my dear friend, preach him to all. Without distinction, to everyone, to every class, every person, the whole world, go and say, Jesus is the saviour of sinners, come and trust him. And finally, where is the seed sown? What is the seed? It's the word. Who sows it? Jesus. How is it sown? Indiscriminately, without care or regard to the type of soil, to everybody, everywhere. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown 
in his heart. So where is the seed sown? In the heart, enters by the ear. It must penetrate the understanding and the heart response. So the seed of the word is sown in the heart. That means as the parable of the sower demonstrates, what you do with the seed of the word lays bare the truth about your heart. The parable starts to get a little uncomfortable at this point. And Jesus brilliantly characterises the four possible heart responses to the word of God. His description of each soil type is meant to make us search our own hearts. The one thing, of course, that is not mentioned is the preparation of the ground. Because that is your work and it is my work, not his work. You must pull up the weeds that compete for attention with the word of Christ. We must dig out the rocks that stop the word sinking down roots into our hearts. I'm thinking of a sermon recently I did a couple of weeks ago about that famous old Keswick theology. I'm afraid I knocked it a bit on the head a bit, really. Just, just let go and let God. No, there is things we have to do. There is things that we have to do. We must plough up the hard-packed ground so that the word can penetrate. And the fault that Jesus was teaching the disciples doesn't lie with the sower. It doesn't lie with the seed. It doesn't lie with the method of sowing. The fault is in the soil. What sort of soil is your heart? How have you prepared today to receive the seed of the word? Will it lie on the surface or will it penetrate? Will it bear fruit? Jesus is teaching if there is no fruit, the fault is ours alone. And one last thing. I cannot help wondering that if it were perhaps a little bit discouraging for the disciples to hear Jesus' proportions. Three fail, one flourishes. Okay? So is Jesus saying that only one in four will be saved? Is he saying that you will always be guaranteed a 25% on your evangelistic efforts? No, no, no. I think he's saying that while many people will reject the message or seem to respond with gladness to fall away, do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. Do not be surprised. This is how it will be. It will be hard. But my friend, there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. And that is the point. Praise the Lord, there will certainly be a harvest. So keep sowing the seed and never give up. Broadcast the seed of the word. Preach the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. The harvest is coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you that your word is the seed which we must sow. But I thank you that the sower is the Lord Jesus himself. And I just do pray for us this afternoon that we would be convicted, emboldened, and encouraged by your words. In Jesus' precious name, amen.